We're going this morning, but it might behoove you to stick a pinky or a piece of paper in Deuteronomy 8, so we'll be jumping over there a little bit, uh, so you might want to save that for future reference here. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Brian C. I'm one of the elders here uh, at Breen, and it is a privilege to be able to share God's word with you while Bo and Sarah are off gallivanting around the Northeast, so... It's the proper word for it, right? Gallivant. Uh, as many of you uh, who have been around for a little bit know that uh, Courtney and I, our basement flooded maybe about a month and a half ago. Um, <laughs> it took out my home office, which was uh, the finished space in the basement. We've been working on gutting that uh, since that flood. And, and I'll tell you, there's a, there's a great many adjectives that I could use to describe my response to this, this, uh, this loss, this disruption, all of those things. I'll tell you, the one that can only be attributed to the Holy Spirit and his work is the word thankful. Uh, there's nothing intrinsically in me that would have produced thanks when I looked at the mess that this thing created. But, but I'll tell you, by faith, I determined to take God at his word that he would use even something like this for his good, and he would actually prove to be good through it. And I don't tell you that to pat myself on the back. I tell you that to praise God because he produced that. In a lot of, way, a lot of ways, um, you know, this thing and this, uh, the, the flood coming in and the thankfulness that came up out of me, uh, I really want to say it was a watershed moment, but that'd be kind of tacky to use that pun, right? So a mile marker moment for me, two years ago when this happened at our former house, that is not how I responded, was not thankful. In fact, I don't think a year ago had this happened that I would have responded that way. I don't even think six months ago I necessarily would have responded that way. But see, the, the Lord, I think, produced this in me in part because I was soaking in this, no pun intended, jeez. <laughs> All right, it's done. I'm not doing another one. I, I'm, jeez. <laughs> uh, I was marinating. Let's go that way. Okay, so I, uh, I was reading, studying, uh, reflecting on this passage from Philippians 4 uh, on contentment. And the Apostle Paul talking about how he has learned the secret of being content in all circumstances. See, due to other circumstances, the Lord took me to this passage at the beginning of the summer.
what if I push the button that I'm supposed to push? Now you can hear me? Do you all want me to start over? I'm not going to do that. <laughs> all right. Uh, we are in Philippians 4, and I'm going to try my best not to gesticulate while I do this so you don't get dizzy. Uh, Philippians 4, verses 10 to 13. Here's the passage. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and, and I know how to abound. In every and in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. All right, sermon is going to have three simple points here. Uh, I have learned I am to be content in whatever situation the Lord chooses for me, and I can do that through Christ. Really simple outline. We're just going to walk through the text here. Let's, uh, let's define our terms before we get into it. Paul, in this passage, uses this word content, that he calls on us, and he says that I have learned that I am to be content. It is a calling, and he says, I can do this through him who strengthens me. So let's define the term. What is contentment? Let me borrow Jeremiah Burroughs' definition from the book. He says, contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Now, that is both a very excellent definition. It is also a very Puritan definition. There's a lot of words in there. So let me repeat it. It's that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to, and check this out, delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Do you hear that definition? In other words, it is faith to entrust ourselves to God's care because we know God's character that we can trust him in whatever he chooses for us because we know that he has wise and fatherly intent for us. And that enables us to joyfully submit, quiet ourselves before the Lord in whatever situation he brings us to. That's contentment. Is that choice to trust him in whatever he brings us to. Now, I really appreciate in Jeremiah Burroughs' book that in the very beginning he makes a really helpful caveat that he says, that is not to say that we cannot bring a complaint to God. That the scripture talks plenty about the idea of lament and even bringing our questions to God. That is not unfaithful to do that. Here's the difference, and I'll make this point at the beginning just to get it out of the way, is that there is a difference between a complaint that moves us toward the Lord and a murmuring or a grumbling that moves us inward. And that's the difference is that a lament presses us in faith to find refuge in our God, even as we ask, why? Why is this happening? Where a murmur or a grumble or a complaint will move us inward in self-entitlement. And so he makes this, this caveat. Uh, additionally, when we talk about contentment, it does not mean that there's sort of a fatalism to it, that we can't do anything about it. If God has given us legitimate means to change our circumstances when times are tough, we should avail ourselves of those. That's a good thing. That's not what contentment means. But contentment means that we submit to, and in fact, even delight in God's wise and fatherly disposal in whatever he chooses for us, that we can trust him. That said, 
What Paul is describing in this passage is something uniquely Christian. It's something that does not naturally come to man, and that is implied in the repeated word, learn. But he says it twice in this passage, and he says that I have learned, this is verse 11, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And he repeats it in verse 12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstances. Here it is. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. In other words, it does not come naturally. It's not built into us. That Paul is expressing, I have had to learn this because it is in fact a secret. It's not readily apparent. It's not natural for us. So, so you think about Prior to coming to Christ, we were content in our discontentment. I think of Ephesians 2 where, where Paul says that we were following the course of this world and following the prince of the power of the air. In other words, we just flowed downstream with the rest of the world and with our desires and our passions and our, our discontentment, our complaining, our murmuring hearts. We're, we're not something that we needed to address or, or even to repent of. So when coming to Christ, the secret of this entirely different possibility, it becomes revealed. It becomes evident and apparent to us. In fact, it becomes a calling. It's something that we are to be. Again, listen to the way Paul says it in 11. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. That's what God wants me to be. He wants me to be content in the midst of whatever he brings me to. So, coming to Christ, we begin to learn this. But again, if we have to learn something, it implies we have to learn it. That it's a process. And that it doesn't just come in a one, like a light switch, that we don't have it and then we have it. It's a process. And that implies that the Apostle Paul is revealing to us that that was the case for him. That he had to learn this over time, the secret of contentment. And he highlights perhaps how he did that in this passage. That he says, I know the secret of being content in any and every circumstance. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. I know how to face plenty and hunger. I know how to face abundance and need. That you see in that flip-flop, in that uh, kind of moving between those positions of abundance and need... In all of those positions, he has found God calling him to be content, to have this quiet, faith-filled, and trusting himself to God's care. And perhaps it's over the course of these ups and downs that this secret became clearer to him. Certainly, if you read Paul's other letters or even the book of Acts, we know he went through a lot, that he had plenty of occasion to learn, to learn this. In some ways, it's probably like being a parent you can, for those of you who are not parents, let me, let me tip you off to a little secret here. You can read every parenting book out there. Maybe I'm looking at YouTube particularly because it's coming soon, right? <laughs> you can read every parenting book out there. You could listen to every seminar. You could listen to every podcast available on parenting. And you could learn a whole lot. And none of it actually prepares you for the experience. Because you don't really learn it until you're in the thick of it. Until you experience the joys and the challenges of raising children, it's in the doing it that you're trained for it. And the reality is that it's in the living of life, both the ups and downs, in this dogged determination to trust God in what he chooses for us. That's where this is forged. 
So think about the way the, the, uh, the book of James says it. James, in, the, in that book, in verses one, or chapter one, verses two to four, you can just listen to it. He says this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith, listen to this, produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Do you hear what he says? That if you have steadfastness, this ongoing endurance, you will be perfect. That's wild. He defines perfection by being endure, I would argue, contentedly in whatever the Lord brings you to. But, but in the way that, the James, that James says, it cannot all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That implies a process, not a product. It implies a process that this is an ongoing thing that the Lord works in us over and over and over again. Therefore, we have learned or we can learn the secret of being content. I got a glimpse of this earlier this week, and I just mentioned in the intro there that uh, we had our basement flood. So wouldn't you know it, while I'm writing a sermon on contentment, we have a rainstorm that rolls in on Tuesday night. So Wednesday morning, I go out to my car, and I hop in, and I look up and notice that in the dome light, it is just sloshing with water. And the dashboard, without the keys and the ignition, is lighting up, and every possible light is flickering on, and it's going, it's kind of going like this, and uh, I called up the shop and said, hey, what's going on with this? And they said, ooh, that's bad. (laughs) So I walked inside at one point. I, I remember looking at Courtney and going, what is the Lord doing? Like, what is it with water right now? I don't get it. And, and man, it hit me like a freight train. I'm about to preach on contentment. Like, the Lord clearly wants me to practice this before I get up here to teach you guys and, and reflect on this together. But see, it was a fresh lesson in the classroom of contentment. It, it's like saying, God, it feels excessive, but look, I'll, I'll trust you even with this one. That I can entrust you in this need or in this hunger, so to speak, or this being brought low, because you have this wise and fatherly care that you intend to use on me. Now, I don't think the Apostle Paul is merely reporting this reality, you know, in his own life. He's just sort of sharing them, hey, this is my experience. I think he's leading by example, and he's actually calling them to do the same. In fact, he's already done this in the book of Philippians. If you want to jump over to chapter 2, just flip over a page or two in your Bibles there to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at 14 to 16. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, he says this. Wait for the flipping. In Philippians 2, 14 to 16, it says, do all things. How many things? All things. Okay. All How many is all? All. Okay, great. Uh, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Wow. Okay, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Look at the purpose. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you all shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Do you see, he calls on them to follow Christ without grumbling or fighting in all circumstances, abundance or need. 
In fact, he goes so far as to say that this in particular, this lack of grumbling, this willingness to resist that temptation, he says it'll mark you off by three distinct things. He says first, that it will mark you off as children of God. This is in verse 15. That it'll mark you off as children of God. And then he says it'll mark you off as without blemish. It's like what James said, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And thirdly, he says that you will look like lights in the midst of a dark world. Do you see what he's saying? That for the Christian who knows that we have a heavenly father who watches over us and cares for us, the refusal to grumble and complain about our circumstances is a witness to a world in darkness. That it actually marks us out for the unbelieving world as the people who have a heavenly father. Friends, prior to coming to Christ, we were all spiritual orphans. We did not have a heavenly father. But if you are in Christ, that is not true of you anymore. You have a heavenly father who knows exactly what you need. And as we choose to trust him and refuse to grumble and fight in the midst of our hardships, man, it's evangelism. It proclaims to a lost world that God is good. So listen, a content Christian, a Christian who quietly entrusts himself to God's care, who doesn't give in to this temptation to moaning and complaining about their circumstance, it demonstrates this. And I think it shows to that world around us that they too can be adopted into the family of God as we have been. So, okay, this is great. We've been called to this contentment. Do, do you want to know what the secret to being content is? Because Paul said it's a secret, and we haven't gotten there, right? So do you want to know it? Uh, we're, not, we're not ready yet. Okay, hang on. Uh, we'll get there. We'll get there. You notice that we, we got to look at this other detail that Paul, back over to Philippians 4, jump over. Back in Philippians 4, he, he notes that it is in ev- any and every circumstance. That's midway through verse 12. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And we get that flip-flop. And so he is covering the high highs and the low lows. Now think about it. I, I think maybe we can readily map onto the need for contentment in the low lows, can't we? Okay, I, I get why the Lord would call me to that. But, but think about it for a second. Here are the words that he uses, that we need to be content when we are brought low, when we face hunger, when we face need. In other words, when things are, quote, unquote, not well, we need to be content. Now, when he uses words like hunger and need, that's, that's kind of interesting, right? Because need implies need, like you need it. Like you're lacking something that is essential. And yet Paul is saying that his, this secret enables him to be content, quietly trusting God, even when, what he, when he doesn't have what he needs. This calls to mind Deuteronomy 8.3. I told you we're going over there. Deuteronomy 8.3. It's the scripture that Jesus quotes when resisting Satan's temptation in the, in the Gospels. If you guys have it, Deuteronomy 8.3, he says this. And he, so this is God's, this is Moses speaking to Israel, telling them what God did while they were in the wilderness. And God humbled you, and check this out, let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know. Nor did your fathers know that he might make you to know that man does not live by bread alone, 
but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you see what Moses is revealing to them is that God actually created the hungering circumstance so that he could provide for them so they could understand that God is their provider. God actually allowed them to lack a biological need to prove the point. Also that he could train them to be content. To, to entrust themselves, to quietly entrust themselves to God's wise and fatherly disposal. Now, if you know the story of Israel, uh, you know, Moses says this. This is what God did. He did it to humble you so that you would trust God. Uh, Israel did the opposite of that. They, in fact, questioned God. And they murmured and complained against him, and God called it rebellion. Now, I think if we're honest, I think it's safe to say that we're similar. That we, we like to distance ourselves from the Israelites, but the reality is we're not that much different. Friends, how quickly do we turn to complaint when things don't go our way? Or, or we feel like we're missing what we, we want or we need? And again, I don't mean the kind of complaint that honors God where we go to him in humility and dependence and lament, desperation, or even perplexity, which I confirmed is actually a word, perplexity. Rather, how quickly do we turn to the kind of entitled complaint that buys into the lie that we somehow deserve better than this? The kind of complaint that, sort of in a low-key way, that, that assumes that God owes us. Now, I'll speak for myself here. It is so easy, so easy to slide into this without, without a thought. And, you know, even over the most mundane inconveniences, this child is not doing what I want. My car lights are doing all these crazy things. That even over the most mundane inconveniences that we slide into complaint, let alone, let alone the truly deep hardships, I think we're all tempted toward this. But think about this. But Paul identifies that it's not just in need. It's also in abundance. That he actually needs the secret of contentment when he has everything he needs. Or, or maybe even more than he needs. Now that's really interesting. In the same breath is saying that I, I need this secret to handle abundance well. What? Now, I don't think we, we typically think that it takes any sort of stamina or strength or insight to abound. We just, we just do it. And, and perhaps that's part of the danger of it. Let me take us back to Deuteronomy 8 because I think the Lord speaks to it again here. Consider God's words through Moses again in Deuteronomy 8. This is verses 11 to 17. If you jump down, if you have your thumb in Deuteronomy there, you can look at verses 11 to 17 in chapter 8. It's very fascinating. Listen to what he says. Again, speaking to the Israelites as they are getting ready to go into the promised land to get the thing that God assured them of, watch what he says to them. Take care, okay, it's a warning, take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply, and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, did you catch the repeated word? Then your heart be lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Watch this. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Do you see the trapping? How quickly that they would forget God and all that he had done to provide for them. See, in plenty, the Israelites turned to pride, and in want, they turned to pagan idols. And friends, I think this is our temptation. Sometimes I think we fare need better than we do abundance. Like when we're aware of our need, there's a sense where that, that can be kind of a cattle prod that pushes us back to God. But man, our abundance... It can be a death trap. When in abundance, do we persistently and intentionally give thanks to God and remember his provision and thus prevent the creeping pride of self-provision? My power and my might, the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Or in days of plenty, do we steadily slide into that mentality, that mentality of self-autonomy? that lies to us about being sufficient without God. I can do this on my own. Man, I see it myself. Like the days when things feel like they're going well, I actually find myself slower to get into God's word. Like how weird. But, but remember, it was in the days of victory, it was times of peace that David fell into his greatest sin with Bathsheba. We don't actually tend to do abundance very well. And so we need this secret that Paul is talking about in both the need and the plenty. So what's the secret? What the heck is Paul talking about here? Well, he tells us in verse 13. Here it is. Here's the secret. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Cool. What? I mean, did, did Paul just throw a Sunday school answer at us? How do I be content in all circumstances? Jesus. Is that what he's doing here? Well, in one sense, yes. The answer is absolutely Jesus. I can do abundance and need. I can do any of that, all of these things, through Christ who strengthens me. But it begs the question, how? How does Christ strengthen us? Listen, it is not a strength from inside yourself, but it is coming from an external source, namely a person. I can do these things through him who strengthens me, not me who strengthens me. In other words, I can do seasons of need with Jesus who enables me to endure need. And I can do abundance through Jesus who enables me to endure abundance. I can do it in any circumstance I find myself in. I'm able to be content. I can entrust myself to God's wise and fatherly disposal with joy and gratitude because of Jesus. Let me explain. Think about the low lows and the high highs again. Let's do the low lows. How does Jesus enable us to endure or strengthen us for contentment when we are in need? Now, chapter 4, verses 10 to 13 is at the end of the book of Philippians. So there's a lot of other chapters in Philippians in which he's them things. 
So think about the statement he makes shortly before this in verses four to seven of chapter four. He says this, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So how often are we supposed to rejoice? Always. Abundance or need. It's the same thing. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In 4 to 7, here's three assurances that he reminds his audience of that I think pertain to this, this contentment. The first is that the Lord is at hand. Is that you are not alone in the midst of your need. And listen, it is the Lord Jesus himself. It is not primarily his provision that enables us to endure. It is his proximity. It is that he is with us in the midst of the need. The Lord himself, the person that is his joy and his comfort and ultimately the source of strength that enables Paul to quietly entrust himself in the care of God because Jesus is with us. Secondly, he says that God hears our requests in the midst of need. He says, present your requests to God. Give these things to him. And that is this reminder that these requests in the midst of need do not fall on deaf ears. That I have access to Father God because of Jesus Christ and what he's done, that I can even bring these requests to him. And so even God extend, even as God extends the season of hunger, like in Deuteronomy 8.3, we have confidence that he hears us. It's a reminder that God only extends suffering circumstances as long as he deems necessary to accomplish what he intends to accomplish with it. Thirdly is this, is that we have peace with God. He says in verse 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Now think about it. The peace of God that he's referring to is not just sort of a placid lake, tranquility. He's talking about the, the end of a war. That's what he means when he says peace. That, that the ending, the cessation of combat between us and God that guards us. In other words, we have peace with God. We have restoration of relationship with God because of God, because of what Christ has done on the cross for us. And so we can endure in Christ because we know that it's through him that God has already dealt with our greatest need, our sin, and our headlong pursuit of hell. That he's already interrupted that through the cross and resurrection. So if he's taking care of that, why would it withhold anything else from us? See, even if our earthly troubles never ended, even if they, consist, they, they persisted, even if the illness is chronic, we know as severe and difficult and trying as those circumstances are, they are momentary because we have peace with God. They will be swallowed up in eternal life in the resurrection. I tell you, friends, these are the kinds of things that I need to call to mind. Like very specifically as a father of someone with a condition that will not uh, improve over the course of life, I need to hold to these realities. We can do today because Jesus is faithful and he is with us. 
We can rejoice in the moment, not because of our circumstances, but because he is with us in the midst of it. And his promises are sure, and we know where he's taking us. That's how we endure. I can do low, I can do hunger, I can do need, because Jesus strengthens me. He's with me. But man, think about how he does, how he does it in abundance. How does he strengthen us for contentment in abundance? Well, I, I think it's through humility. First off, it's through humility. Remember what he says in chapter 2. Pretty familiar verse. In chapter 2, verses 3 to 8, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Listen to this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, as we are nearer to Christ, who humbled himself for our good, that puts us in a position of humility. How could we do anything other than humility? The nearness of Christ strengthens us by laying us low. He did that for me. How could I ever get self-assured or proud or think I have provided anything for myself? The proximity and the humility of Christ, it reminds us of how dependent we are on him and how his humiliation on the cross puts us in our place. So, so it, it, it humbles us. When we are in seasons of abundance, man, we need to remember, I am utterly and absolutely dependent on God and anything I had was given by him. Paul says as much as in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. You can just listen. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? And, and if you have received it, why do you boast as though it were not a gift? Do you hear that? Everything we have, whether it is a possession, whether it is money, whether it is skill, whether it is health, whatever it is, it was given to us as a gift. And there is no room for boasting as though it were not a gift. See, the nearness of Christ, it lays us low, it humbles us even in our abundance. But think, the nearness of Christ also reminds us that the world is never going to be enough. It will never be enough. One of my favorite quotes from The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, Jeremiah Burroughs says this. It's really fascinating. He says, it may be said of one who is, a, is contented in a Christian way that he is the most contented man in the world and yet the most unsatisfied man in the world. You never learned the mystery of contentment unless it may be said of you that just as you are the most contented man, so you are also the most unsatisfied man in the world. You'll say, how is that? A man who has learned the art of contentment is the most contented with any low condition he has in the world. And yet he cannot be satisfied with the enjoyment of all the world. If God disposes of him for the things of the world to have but bread and water for his present condition, he can be satisfied with God's disposal in that. Yet if God should give unto him kingdoms and empires, all the world to rule, he would not be satisfied with it. You see, his point 
is that you could have absolutely everything in this world. And if you are a Christian and contented in a Christian way, you know it's never enough to satisfy. That nothing less than Christ will do. That plenty, abounding, abundance, we know abundance may fill our bellies, but it will never fill our souls. And so the closer we are to Jesus, the more that we realize the world will never be enough. And as that old song goes, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Friends, the secret that Paul is describing is in no way fatalism. It is what it is. That's not what he's talking about. Now see, this is faith. This is faith that he's talking about. This is entrusting ourselves to the hand of our God who knit us together in our mother's wombs. It is entrusting ourselves to the God who has counted every hair on our head. It is entrusting ourselves to him who turns every evil thing for good in our lives. It is submitting ourselves joyfully to the God who would die to save us in the midst of our rebellion. We are entrusting ourselves in plenty or in want to our God who deals with us according to his mercy and goodness. And so in faith, we can say, may the Lord do to me as he sees fit. I'll end with this reminder from Romans 8.32. He says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Friends, we know through Jesus that whatever else it is, whether abundance or need, whatever it is, it will always inevitably be good for those who trust him because he is good. That's our hope. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you are a trustworthy God. You are worthy to be trusted. And, and in this room is represented both ends of that spectrum, that there are, are friends in this room who are experiencing the need, and there are friends in this room who are experiencing the abundance, and maybe to some degree we're all experiencing both to some degree. The reality is in, in all of this, you have called on us to be content to to quietly entrust ourselves to your good and gracious care, knowing that you are good. And so I pray, Father, that again, that that for those who are in the need, would you comfort them with your presence and your proximity? And for those who are in the abundance, God, would you you humble us and to loosen our grip from the things of the world, guard us against that that damnable self-autonomy that so quickly sneaks in. God, help us to to fix our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, that that is our hope of having this kind of contentment and learning this secret. We ask it all for your glory, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please rise for our song of response, I will glory my Redeemer. Psalm 1914. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer.
Oh, oh, oh.